Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. And I'm thrilled to have with me legendary producers and songwriters Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. Probably most famous for their work with Janet Jackson. Their decades-long collaboration really has always defined her sound. And they've also worked with everyone from Mary J. Blige to Human League. Since the 80s, they've been responsible for some of the funkiest most beautifully produced pop songs of all time. Welcome, guys. Thanks, Brian. Nice to be here. I want to start off. You have this great new song with Babyface, and you have a project under your your own names after all this time. What is it about now that you're finally uh, doing this this way? <laughs> well, I think a couple of things. I think number one is just our the way our career kind of worked. was Our intention was to do uh, this album and the idea for it started 35 years ago, actually. Before we started working on Control with Janet, we uh, were in the studio and getting ready to start working on our own um, on our own album. And so we'd started putting tracks together for that, and then we got a call from John McClain, who was the A&R person at A&M Records at that time. He said, we want to do... Well, he asked us who we wanted to work with on the roster. We said, Janet, is who we'd like to work with. So when Janet came to Minneapolis to start working, we got started and... We ended up thinking we were done with the record. And so we said, uh, you know, John, come up and listen to what we got. And we played him Control and Nasty. And we played him, uh, you know, Pleasure Principle and When I Think of You. And, you know, we're thinking we're playing him all these, you know, songs, hit songs we're thinking. And like all A&R people, he said, I just need one more. We said, what are you talking about? He said, I just need one more. We said, forget it, man. So anyway, we went, I think we were driving to Rudolph's Barbecue or somewhere, and we just said, let us play you some stuff from our album. And we started playing in tracks, and about the third track in, he goes, that's the one I need for Janet. We said, oh, okay, what are you talking about? He said, no, just play it for her, and if she likes it, give it to her. And we're like, okay, man. All right, so that was the story. The next day, played it for her at the studio, and when it went off, she said, who's that for? And we said, well, you <laughs> if you want it. And she said, oh, I want it. And that song ended up becoming What Have You Done For Me Lately? Wow. Basically started her career, ended ours, or at least our <laughs> album, you know, that part of our career, postponed it, I guess you could say. <laughs> and over the years, every time we tried to make songs with people for our album, we'd say, you know, well, can we do a song for our album? When the song was done, the artist would go, oh, I got to keep this for myself. So that was the end of that. So that was kind of the the thing about three years ago well maybe a little longer than that but but i remember kind of three years ago uh when we were inducted in the songwriters hall of fame uh, we went in the same year as babyface went in and people said you know what haven't you done that you still want to do and we kind of looked around and said well we haven't done an album yet we always wanted to do our own album and we always wanted to work with babyface so maybe that's the the thing so that that was kind of the way the whole thing got started. And then we got serious and kind of concentrating on doing our own album. We got selfish, I guess, also. And we just said to all those artists that we had asked in the past, we're going to work on an album. Can you jump in and, and do it? And um, most of them have said yes, so that's kind of cool. But um, And I also think that we didn't know enough to do what we wanted to do on the album. We needed to know a little bit more, be a little bit more knowledgeable, both in recording and also in, you know, the technologies that are available to do recording, particularly in during this time, you know, pandemic and all those things happening. So it's a lot of challenges, but I'll say that it, it's God's timing. It all happens in the way that it's supposed to. He don't know nothing about it. 
Well, this song, the one song I've heard so far, is a lovely sort of throwback track. Tell me about kind of just going back to that style of songwriting and that lush R&B thing that was just, it's just, I saw all the comments to the Jimmy Fallon performance are just like, I miss music like this. So tell me about kind of what target you were hitting with that sound, because it, it, it hit it for sure. I think we, the way, what we were looking for is, first of all, as producers, we've always worked under the thought that we're trying to make the artist sound the best they can. And by the best, a lot of times that means make them sound the most like themselves mm. as we want. And sort of the concept of the album in our mind was really doing what we, and kind of in our production in general, was always kind of do what we liked and then hope that people agree with us. So in Babyface, we knew the kind of song and the kind of sound that we wanted to hear from him. And the result we wanted to get from it was to make people remember why they fell in love with Babyface in the first place. But the other part of it was that we wanted the artists to remember to fall in love with themselves or, or, or be in love with themselves again. Because what happens is, particularly you know, with artists that are have had such long careers, is at some point between analytics and streaming and algorithms and all these different things, people start telling them, well, you need to make a record like this or you need to update your sound or you need to do... I mean, there's a lot of advice given that has nothing to do with really the musicality of things, but more you know, in the marketing of things or whatever you want to call it. Our thing was, if you said, play me a Babyface record, that was the record we wanted to make. We wanted to make the definitive Babyface record. And irregardless of trendiness and all that stuff, that wasn't what we were trying to do. And so we ended up, first of all, choosing to record analog with, you know, analog tape, you know, 24-track tape, <clears throat> a lot of live, you know, instrumentation, and really make music that, doesn't have a time frame, doesn't have a, a sense of, you know, oh, they're trying to be trendy or they're trying to do that. It was just kind of to make it feel good because the feeling of it is the most important thing. And I remember when Babyface heard the finished thing because he just sang, he said, you know, you guys produce it. I don't want to produce it, just you guys. And I remember when he heard it, he just said, that sounds really good. And we said, thanks. And he said, no, that sounds really good. And we said, your baby face, what the heck do you think it's supposed to sound like? But that was when we realized that him hearing himself without having to live through the pain of the production of it, he could just hear himself as just an artist. He fell back in love with himself, I think, a little bit. And so for us, that was kind of the effect that we wanted to have with the song. And I call it nostalgia. It's that feeling of comfort of hearing something that's familiar to you, but the excitement of hearing something new. And that combination, I think, is a great combination, and that's kind of what we're going for, you know, with, with the Babyface song and, and with the album in general. I know that a lot of the album isn't finalized and you're not ready to unveil all the details. Is there anything else you can say about the other artists and what to expect from this release? Well, we basically just kind of put our wish list of artists together, people who we wanted to work with, most of whom we'd worked with before and, and with a lot of success over the years, um, plus a few new people. And, you know, it still is a work in progress. We actually are going to come out in in, uh, in June. We were thinking March, but, you know, it's taking a little longer, you know, to get done than we thought under the conditions. But it's it's all good. It's all good things. But um, the one I will mention, and, and once again, it's an artist story, and the artist thing is really important. I will mention Boys to Men. Yeah. Uh, it was a record we did. And 
The boys to men story is very cool because once again, very much like Babyface, I remember Sean from Boys to Men came over to the studio to hear what we had done. And when he heard the song, he literally started crying. And he he kind of then articulated to us that all these thoughts that kind of went through his head as he was listening to the song. He was going back to the fact that when Boys to Men got signed. Um, they got signed, Michael Bivens from New Edition signed them to the label uh, back when he was doing that. And, you know, the fact that New Edition was the reason they, they sang Can You Stand the Rain, which was a New Edition song for their audition for Mike, Michael Bivens. Their name, Boys to Men, came from a song we wrote called Boys to Men that was on that New Edition album. Uh, and then when they came up to Minneapolis to work with us on Bended Knee, which was a big hit for them, um, just the feeling that after you know, singing songs that we had written to get their deal and naming their group after a song we had written, they were actually in the studio with us. And all of those memories started coming back to him as he's listening to the new song. But the new song we did with Boys to Men has all the things that I guess you would say the classic Boys to Men songs have. Live orchestra, real chord changes, modulations, dynamics, you know, live instruments. It's just all of that. And he had come to the string session, actually, when we did the string session for the song and was blown away by that. And the the string players, for people that don't know, when the string players come in to do session, they basically do what they do and then they leave. And I'm telling you, they all stuck around to hear the final product of the song, which that never happened. So we've kind of had moments like that, but the boys to men one and then Sean hearing it and having that reaction to it and him falling back in love with himself again I think was an important moment and one that I think hopefully all the artists when they hear their finished songs feel because I think that's important. When it comes to your style, maybe you can tell us about the pretty top and the funky bottom. The pretty bottom too, maybe that maybe sometimes it gets there too. <laughs> yeah, I like funky bottom. <laughs> you know, when Jam and I met, we met um, in a summer program called Upward Bound where we were inducted to be peer teachers. But during that summer, you know, I had just picked up the bass and I was playing around with my bass in my dorm room when Jam saw me back through the door. And then one day I saw him in the uh, lunchroom and uh, he was kind of serenading some girls on the piano. And I was like, oh, this dude's kind of cool. So we figured out a way to get together and play an event at the end of the um I guess the summer session, we brought in a couple other players with us and we were friends ever since then. Just that was the start of it. But we could never really figure out how to write together the correct way. But I would always invite him to play on anything that I did in the studio, like jam, come on over, man, and play. You know, and he would always do some things, some synth things, and it will always be cool. During that particular summer, we also kind of exchanged music. And I'm a funk guy. I love the funk and R&B. Jam was more a pop guy. So his sensibilities were a, a lot different than mine, uh, just from his musical, I guess, uh, directory. So we would clash a little bit when we were trying to, to put our music together. Then we got the opportunity during the years and the time to kind of figure some things out, I guess, and how how we could merge a few things together. And the classic record that came out of that approach was probably Just Be Good To Me mm. as as the first hit. 
that where we were able to merge the the pretty, you know, top end of things with the nasty bottom of things. And we've been, I guess, able to do it ever since. Not to say without conflict in terms of trying to figure out how to make it work, because there's always a rub here and there. But I think that's what makes the energy of the records so good, is that it's not a clear cut thing. It makes you feel a way about it. You can feel either way about it. But we always try to keep that pretty, that pretty top with that tenacious bottom that makes you want to move. And uh, I, I don't know. That's just a, a natural thing for us now. I love the rub. I mean, it's interesting because that's really what makes it a great pop song is a, a, a pretty top and a funky bottom, especially as the years go by. That is the definition of sort of a post 80s starting in the 80s, starting in your era. That's what you needed. You couldn't just have the pretty top for the most part. You couldn't just have the funky bottom. You needed both. So I guess that explains a lot about your success. Yeah, but it, it wasn't always that way. When we arrived on the scene, it wasn't that way. It was, you know, pop songs were, you know, big ballads <laughs> and, you know, a lot of reverb. And we kind of changed things. I mean, luckily we worked with some great artists who were um, able to and amenable to trying things and because we never had a problem trying things. And so whether you get like a, a great artist like Janet or a, a, another artist in question, like would be like the, the, uh, the human league. Sure. Where, where you get, you know, the big smashing drums and, and then you put a ballad over that, but it's pretty, but it still, it still has some tenaciousness to it. It's like aggressive, you know? So it was, um, it was, it was always a fun experiment, I guess I would call it. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Macy's, Adidas, Walmart, Nike, Wine.com, Samsung, Lenovo, Sephora, and more and even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use, and you get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. The funny thing is about Human League is you made Human League sound human. <laughs> you know, uh, ironically enough. That was sort of and that was sort of the idea of it. It was very much um, because they had always been so robotic. We almost thought that it wouldn't it be cool to do a song called Human, but actually get emotion out of the singer. And that was something right. Terry was able to do, you know, vocal master Terry, as I call him. One thing that's interesting to look at 
as far as where you guys are situated in in the uh, in the musical canon and in, in musical history is you're this bridge between the Prince world or the Minneapolis sound and the Jackson family. You're this direct connection. You went from one world to the other in some ways, and that, that's a that's a fascinating thing. And I, I think one of the first things that Janet's dad said to you is, "Don't make my daughter sound like Prince," right? Exactly what he said. He said, you guys are from Minneapolis. And we said, yeah. And he said, Prince is from Minneapolis. And we said, yeah. Don't have my daughter sounded like Prince. You're like, okay, Mr. Jackson. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Absolutely right. And he didn't know how, how deep the connection went, I guess. Yeah. Well, you know, it was interesting because I remember that meeting. The interesting thing about that meeting was that Janet was concerned because when they played what was our latest record at that point in time that we had done, uh, it was a song called The Heat of Heat by Patty Austin, which we had done for Quincy Jones. And it was, you know, live. It's a very lush record, right? Yeah. Yeah. Super lush strings and big, you know, flourishes. And and she said, I don't know whether I want my album to sound like that. And we kind of had to say, no, Janet, no, no. Your album will be totally different. You know, every we give everybody their own sound. That's what we do, you know. So she was so she was cool with that. And um, and actually it was it was the thing that got her excited about even being a part of the creative process because the albums she had done before were kind of, I think, happened because of her, you know, father getting her a record deal and the fact that she could sing because she had a really good voice. But she was also doing TV and doing movies and she was doing all kinds of different things. And by the time Control came around, she was very focused on being a, um, you know, a singer and an artist. And then the thing that really solidified it for her was after about five days of just talking, she said, when are we going to get started? And we said, oh, we got started. And we showed her the lyrics to control. <laughs> and she said, oh, wait, this is what we're talking about. And we said, yeah. And she said, so whatever we talk about, that's what we're going to write about. And it's like, yeah. And then she was, oh, well, I wanted to write about this and I want to write about this. And it got her excited about the process, the creative process. So all of that was was really kind of instrumental and it was kind of the approach we took with all of the artists but she was the one that really embraced it and i think found her voice and it's a voice that's obviously continued over you know 35 years and we go back with control 35 years so it's it's pretty cool the way the, the evolution kind of happened one of the great collaborations in music history but obviously uh you know we don't need to tell the story again famously uh prince fired you which is probably the best thing that that ever happened to you in the end and then you know when you were in the time you talked about him watching from the side of the stage and being kind of proud but also not wanting to be upstaged and all that then given all the success you went on to have and with the jackson family who he sometimes did perceive as rivals what kind of sense did you get about his feelings about all that over the years? Well, I like to say he didn't fire us. I like to say he freed us. Right. Um, and, you know, we could never take away um, the reality that he gave us a great opportunity just to be actually noticed. We poked our head up out of the sand and uh, we were in the time and he took us all around the United States and gave us a, a staging opportunity which allowed us to then go out and do some things and one thing that jam and i always did we always did right i don't know if we always produced <laughs> we kind of I, I never really even knew what a producer did but the we the reason we started to produce is because we wrote songs and then we would give them to people and they would never do them as well as we thought they should be done so then we started to try our hand at it 
So we started doing that around and, and, you know, Prince didn't want us to do that. He never wanted us to produce anything outside of his network and uh, actually ask us not to. And we drank the Kool-Aid for a while, but in his network, we were never going to get the opportunity. So not to be defined or anything, but just wanting to do what we always wanted to do, which was to write songs. That's what we did. And we started to spread our songs. And at a point, we needed to spread our production. So we did that. And then when Prince heard it, he actually liked it. He yeah. he, he actually stated that he liked what we were doing. And he wanted us to change it because he never wanted us to give away the sound, the sound from Minneapolis, his sound, or however you want to state it. Uh, but that was never our intent. Our intent was just to create music that we thought was cool. When we were never trying to give away the family jewels or anything. So um, when it came to Janet, and, and I know I, I got several um, reports back when he heard the Control album, he listened to it and he laughed. And I, I know he would do this because the first time we played him any of our songs, he would always laugh. But then he he would always say stuff like this could be a hit. <laughs> um, but when he heard the Janet, he listened to it and he threw it out the window. He was driving or riding in the car, but went on to love the Control album. I mean, you know, it, it was he was a proud a, a proud papa, I would say, because he gave us uh, he basically birthed us as. Uh, how, do as you, how do you interpret the uh, window throw? <laughs> I, I I call it grandstanding. How about that? that that's probably the, the simplest way to explain things. Uh, he wanted to show someone he had total disregard for something that he probably thought was really good. <laughs> but one thing that I do know, ultimately, in the long run of things, he was very proud of us. And uh, we were always, I can't, uh, we were always friends and brothers, but not always friendly. Hmm. <laughs> But we, but we all ultimately got along in the long run because the other side of that was as bosses, we started to understand some of the, the trials and tribulations that he would have as the person in control because that comes with, with the price too. And because everybody's motive is, and their motivation is not the same as yours. So, you know, you have to give him the respect that he's due. So that's why I say he didn't fire us, he freed us. He let us go, uh, and that gave us the opportunity to uh, fulfill our destiny. But that was totally up to us, and it wasn't up to him. Jimmy, you said that when you were in in the band that Prince was so hyper-focused that he would know what you were playing specifically with your left hand and challenge what you were playing with the left hand. That kind of blows my mind. <laughs> like that level of being able to hear and detail and also dictatorialness as well. It's great. It's wild to me. Yeah, but that, that that was the great thing to me about the, the biggest thing that Prince, amongst all the lessons that we learned from him, the biggest one I took away from him was just work ethic because he outworked everybody. He would come and rehearse our band for six hours and he'd go rehearse the revolution for six hours and then he'd go to the studio all night and he'd create, I don't know, 1999 or something just ridiculously classic. And the next day, come in and pop a cassette in and go, this is what I did last night at the studio and put it on and it would just be amazing. So I never, you know, that sense when people are trying to tell you to do something, but they're not doing it themselves. Prince was not like that. Prince led by example. 
And and the perfect example is the one you said, the left hand, right hand thing. So we were practicing seven 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 ninety three eleven. I remember. One of the funkiest um, songs ever made, by the way. Yeah, I I agree. And the most, not only funky, but innovatively funky. If you think about the drum beat on that song, it's just, that's crazy. But I remember we were rehearsing the song. So we get done, we ran it through. We thought everything sounded really good. And all I was playing on that song was, uh, I was just doing the the bass part. I copying Terry's bass part. And I was just going, that was my part, right? And so then when it got done, Prince said, Jimmy Jam, what are you doing with your left hand? He said, double what Monty's doing on the keyboards. And I said, well, it's not like that on the record, Prince. He said, it's got to be better than the record. Okay, cool. So now we play it. And I'm now going to go boom, boom, boom. Uh, 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 I play that, right? So then we get done. And he goes, Jimmy Jam, what note are you singing on the course? I said, Prince, I'm not singing a note on the course. So, you know, Terry and Morris and I think Jesse and Monty, they, they're doing the harmony. Find a note. And I said, it's not like that on the record, Prince. He says, got to be better than on the record. Okay, fine. So now I'm doing my part. Seven, 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 ninety-three, eleven. I'm playing my parts. We get done. He goes, why aren't you doing the choreography? I said, Prince, I'm standing behind a keyboard, man. What do you want me to do? I'm, I'm doing the choreography. He said, choreography is simple. You should be able to do it. So now I'm trying to do the choreography. I'm trying to do the note. I'm trying to play with both hands, and I'm totally frustrated. And I finally, at the end of the day, I'm just so pissed off. <laughs> so we leave rehearsal. The next day we come back, Prince walks in and goes, 777. And I go, oh, here we go. We launch into the song. About two minutes into the song, I'm realizing that I'm doing everything he had asked me to do and without even thinking about it. I'm playing both hands. I'm hitting the choreography. I'm hitting my note. And it made me realize that in me, he saw something that I didn't see in myself. And he motivated me and got me to do something. And so I never forgot that. And by the way, that same thing that he did for me is the same thing Terry Lewis does for me every day. You know, there'll be something that I just is a throwaway. Like uh, to me, it's just like a piece of, you know, I'll, I'll come up with something and it's a piece of throwaway something. And the next thing you know, I'll hear a finished song with that track or whatever that was that I had. And I'll go, Terry, where'd you get that? He says, well, I took it off your hard drive because I needed a track for something, something. And I'd be like, damn, I didn't even hear it like that. So that's the thing is you have people in your life that you do that with. I think I hopefully I do that for him also. And it's just kind of that thing where you, you know, he says a barber can't cut the back of his own head. And that's a great analogy because, yeah, you're looking in the mirror at yourself and you're going, oh, yeah, I look great. Everything's good. But there's someone standing behind you might go, yeah, but you got to take care. We can trim it back here a little bit better. We're kind of always been those kind of person for the artists that we work with, but also for each other. We can see in each other the greatness or the things that need that could happen to make things better. Um, and that's kind of our, our philosophy. Amen. Tell me about Nasty by Janet Jackson. Give me a beat! What a great song. How did that one come together? Nasty was cool because a lot of a lot of kind of factors there. Number one, the overall philosophy with Janet was that, and I might have said it earlier, was she had a lot of attitude in her earlier things that we saw her on, like when she was on Sonny and Cher, or she was on the, the Brothers Variety Show, and you saw her on TV, and she was always this little girl with this feisty attitude. And when she put yeah. out her first two records, they were nice. 
but they weren't, they didn't have any of that attitude. So our thing was, can we, what can we do to get the attitude back? So in our way, we wanted to make tracks that were really aggressive and then have her sing them very aggressively where, where appropriate to do it. And Nasty was one of those. And I, I had gotten, I remember we had gotten this new keyboard um, called a Mirage and it was this kind of cheap sampler because we couldn't afford the expensive samplers, right? So we got this little cheap Mirage sampler and the sound in Nasty is literally one sound that was on a floppy disk that came with the thing. And when I was playing the keyboard, I just went, and I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. And we were using a Lindrum for the drum sound and, and we did the little, little Lindrum programs and stuff. But we never really sequenced anything. It was just kind of on the fly as, as things were moving the tape. I would just change a, you know, a button here, a button there would change a beat or change a sound or whatever. So it was all very kind of spontaneous. And so the nasty concept came because we had gone to um, this kind of club bar and these guys were bothering Janet. Mm. And um, we were watching her from afar and people were going, aren't you going to go over and help her? And we we're like, no, we just, we got her. I mean, if anything crazy happens, we're good. So I remember she came over to us and she said, she was like, oh, those guys over there were, they were so nasty. And they were, you know, how come you didn't come help me? And we were like, well, you're here now. You obviously didn't really need our help. So everything must be okay. And she said, oh yeah, I guess that's true. You know, so, because people had always been there to help her. She was able to, to get it done by herself, but then she was like, I don't like those nasty guys. And that became the subject of the song. So the idea of her singing it even, when she went in to sing it, she started singing it, sitting in the movie show, like, you know, the Janet voice, right, that we all know. <laughs> and uh, we said, Janet, what if you sang it an octave lower? And she went, sitting in the movie show. She said, oh, I don't know, that sounds really weird. And we said, no, no, try it, let's, let's see. And that was a trust that we had gotten with each other through getting to know each other before we even went in the studio. Those five days of getting to know each other, she was fearless, as Terry said. We work with artists that a lot of times were fearless and trusted us. And so she started singing and she start, sang it in this low, gruff voice. And then when it came to nasty, it wasn't nasty. It was nasty, right, when she sang yeah. it. And so that was the thing. And when she, I remember when she went home that night, she was like, I'm not sure. And we said, let us comp the vocal. Put the vocal together and we'll see. And then I remember the next day she came to the studio and we played it back for her. And she got this look on her face and it's this look that she gets on her face. It's the best look an artist could ever give you, that look of surprise and satisfaction. And that was the look she got was like, wow, this is really, this is cool. This is different. This is, you know, and that was the thing that fueled us. Because Nasty was one of the earlier songs we did in, in Making Control. But that kind of took all of the any apprehension she had, any any nervousness, any sort of thing. She knew we had her back, but she was, whatever she sang, it was going to be cool. And we always said, if we don't like it, we'll just keep it here to ourselves. You know, we're not going to put every, release anything that you don't like and approve of. But as writers and producers, it was the best situation because it was someone who was young, who wanted to learn, who wanted to get better. Um, she would work tirelessly in the studio. She never was like, oh, I want to go home. She was always like, let's do it. And we were in the right environment in Minneapolis where there honestly wasn't a whole lot to do. It was like, let's be in the studio, not a lot of distractions. So it was all those factors kind of kind of happened into it and came together and kind of the magic of that album. And the uh, Ms. Jackson, If You're Nasty, which is uh, certainly one of the most famous lines of all time, did that come, how did that come about? That was just a lyric, that was just a lyric thing. We, we kind of, 
would say to her like different kind of ad libs and we like the idea of of her talking of saying things and even the idea like i said earlier about the way the album was se sequenced it was almost like when the song control goes off you could have just the song could have went off and then nasty could have started but it was about um you mentioned the word bridge earlier bridge is important to us because it is tying things together and so the idea of we just said Janet, just say, give me a beat, like really loud. And I remember she said, give me a beat. And it's like, no, 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 no. Like you're commanding it. Like, like you're, like you point to the drummer, like just point at the drums or point at somebody and just say, give me a beat. Like, you know, and she did. And I was like, okay, yeah, yeah. And I'll do it again. And, double, and we took it and doubled it and whatever. But that was the fact that control ends. And then she says, give me a beat. And then it's gone, gone, gone. And the beat that comes in. To me, also psychologically, those are the moments that to me make that record really cool. And then the dialogue before, what have you done for me lately? You know, what have you done for me lately? And all that into it. Like those kinds of things are, to me, what making albums were about back in that day. And it's the process that we still love to do to this day is those kinds of segues and those kinds of interludes and those things to kind of take you on a, a musical journey. That to me is part of the, the fun of it. I've heard you tell the story, but I'd love to, I mean, there's no doubt that That's the Way Love Goes is, is one of your greatest songs, one of Janet's greatest songs, always one, probably one of my favorite songs of all time. Everything about that song is perfect. And I know they didn't want it as the single. I mean, they, you had to fight for it, but, but maybe just break down how that song came together. Well, I think this song is a, is a great example, as we talked about earlier, about the funky bottom and the pretty top. It doesn't get funkier than James Brown. So at the foundation of that song, you had two of the most famous, probably hip hop samples that existed. You had Impeach the President, which is the drum beat, which is the right. So you had that. And then you had, along with that, the James Brown Papa Don't Take No Mess which is one of the funkiest, you know, James Brown songs ever. The idea, though, was then to take that and make a song out of it, put chords over the top and, you know, B section and all those types of things. So the fact of using really kind of beautiful, soft synthesizers and that kind of thing, um, we, we thought was a great just kind of sonic, you know, palette to work with. And I remember playing the song for Janet the first time, or not the, not even the song, it was just the track. And I remember I had played it for, there was a guy named uh, Mark Mazzetti. He was an A&M Records guy. And uh, he was a guy that was, unfortunately, because the move had gone to Virgin at that point, he wasn't involved with the record, but he happened to be in town. And he said, what are you working on? And I played him the track and he was like, oh my God, this is the most amazing track ever. I, oh, I love this track. And I said, oh, yeah. And he says, what does Janet think? And I said, she hasn't heard it yet. And I remember it was really funny. So then when Janet came to the studio, she heard it and she kind of said, yeah, it's okay. And I was like, what? I was, wasn't devastated, but I was like, okay, well, well, what else do you want to work on? And we started working on another song. So then when she left, we took a little break over the holidays. And I remember she took the song with her. I put it on a cassette with a bunch of other songs. When she was on vacation, um, they played the song, kind of what was in the video. If you remember the That's the Way Love Goes video. That was kind of what happened. They put the song on and everybody started going, oh man, Janet, this is amazing. This is amazing. And she was like, it is? So when she got back to Minneapolis and I said, you know, what do you want to start working on? She said, 
oh my God, that song, that track, we have to work on that track. And I said, which track? She said, oh my God, the track you gave me, the track you gave me. I said, oh, the one you didn't like? She said, oh no, I get it now. I love it. I love it. I love it. And she was staying at my house. And I remember about two in the morning, she hit me on the intercom and she said, are you asleep? And I said, not anymore. And she said, I got it. She said, that's the way love goes. That's it's going to be called. That's the way love goes. And I got the concept and I said, okay, great. I said, we can do it at the studio tomorrow. And she's oh, okay. Okay. It was just kind of magic the way that song came together and, and the fact that she fell in love with it. And then as you said, after the song was done, in our minds, it was the first single from the album because it really represented what the sound of the, the next album was, which was a sound of, it was love. It was her kind of falling in love phase. And we were all kind of in love at that point in our lives. So it all made sense. And then I remember the record company, what happened was a couple of the guys from Virgin came to town during the making of If, the song If. Yeah. And I told Janet, I said, hey, some of the record guys are in town. Can I play them something? She said, yeah, just play them whatever you're working on. And I said, oh, I'm working on it. So she said, okay, cool. So I put if on because they hadn't heard anything. And of course, there was this whole thing because the contract at the time was like the biggest contract any female artist had ever gotten from a record company. So I think there was a little concern about, you know, what we're up to. And when we played if, I remember their jaws dropped and they just were like, okay, great. Sounds great. And so in their minds, that was the album, right? In their minds when they left. So when they started talking about If as the single, because in their minds, that's what they heard that day. It was like, no, 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 but you haven't even heard the rest of the album. And I remember uh, Janet saying, oh, no, that's the way love goes. And she went to L.A. When she came back to Minneapolis, she said, If is the single. And we were like, no. So the final piece of that particular story was we were in the studio with Chuck D., doing a, a song called New Agenda. It was the last song on the album we were doing. And when we were done, it was maybe two in the morning and it was Chuck and it was Hank Shockley from, from Public Enemy and uh, wow, uh, from the Bomb Squad. And we were like, hey, can we play the two songs that we think are the singles and you tell us? And we played them. And I remember If came on and they were like, oh man, yeah, that's Janet, that's Janet, you know? And Janet's looking at me like, yeah, I told you, right? And then we put on That's The Way Love Goes and Chuck D just said, Man, that song, that's like when Sade puts out an, a, a record. When he picked up a CD and he just said, it's like when you put that CD out, but there's no big fanfare. It's just kind of, you just put it on the table and then people go, oh, wait, what is that? Mm -hmm. Oh, a new Sade CD? <laughs> and I looked at Janet like, see, you know. And anyway, that's the way Love Goes ended up being the single. And of course, it was absolutely huge. And as you said, and you know, it's perfect song. I, I think in my mind, it it really was because it really married a whole lot of different things together. And I remember later on when we produced Mary J. Blige, I remember Mary J. Blige was always kind of the blueprint for a big kind of hip hop soul type of thing. And I remember she did a record with the same sample in it. Mm. And I always wondered if she had done that record at some point, we hadn't heard it, but if she had done that record and she said, no, I was copping y'all on that one. Just, <laughs> that was, that was, yeah, it was just, it was cool. It was a great experience. You always make kind of innovative use of the stereo field. And that's the way Love Goes is a great example of just like stereo vocal production and mixing with the deep voice going on one side and then Janet on the other. And then there's a lot. Talk maybe about that in particular and just generally your, your sort of hi-fi philosophy on that kind of thing. It was kind of like um, in that song, because of the simplicity of the song, we thought it was kind of cool to play with the vocal and not do like a lot of ad libs and a lot of the things that we would kind of normally do with a song. It was all about the subtlety of the song. 
and the, vo- the all the voices on the song, the low ones and the, and everything is all Janet. It's all just electronically tuned. Whoa! Back when the um, you know that's the way love, that's the way love, that's the way love. That's all Janet. That's just her doing that. And um, we just thought it was kind of a cool way to kind of get in and out of the song. It was kind of like the last thing I remember we did on the song was the uh, like a moth to a flame burned by the fire. My love is blind. Can't you see my desire? Like that was kind of we kept thinking we need to have some sort of intro to the song or something that catches your ear right away. I remember um, uh, Andre Harrell, rest in peace. I remember I was going to a, I don't know what, like a convention in in Chicago. And they asked, would I mind sharing a car with, um, our flights were landing at the same time, would we share a car with uh, Andre Harrell? And I said, cool. In the car, we're driving. And on the radio, that's the way Love Goes comes on. And it was the first time I'd ever heard it on the radio. And I remember Andre Harrell saying to the driver, wait, turn that up, man. What is that? Turn that up. And he's talking to me and he's going, Jam, you hearing this, man? Listen to this, man. This is amazing. Oh, man. Listen to this, man. Man, there's some cinematic shit going on here, man. Listen to this shit. And he's like going. And then when it goes off, the DJ goes, and that's the new one from Janet Jackson. That's the way love goes. And he looks at me and he goes, man, that's Janet Jackson, man. Did you, wait, did you do that song? And I said, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) And he said, Oh man, why didn't you say something? And I said, because I was just enjoying watching you, you know, listen to the song, you know. But it was just kind of a bunch of those types of little subtle things. And I remember we had added a couple more overdubs to the song. And I remember when Janet heard it, she was like, no, 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 take that all out. It's just got to stay simple. It's just got to be subtle. And um, that's the way we kept it. But it, it is, I don't, I don't think any song is perfect, but I think that that one probably comes the closest in our minds. You know, when you kind of would hear something in your mind and then the way it would turn out would be so far beyond what you what you even thought that was definitely one of those yeah and you'd miss the point if you didn't mention steve hodge and the mix that he put on that thing man steve hodge our mixer at the time was or is one of the best ever i think that's some of what i'm hearing I think a song that I don't know if you're asked about this often, but I, I think is one of one of your greatest is uh, "All for You" by Janet Jackson. It was late in the game. It was already 2001, and it was it was you know right up there with all, all her best stuff, all your best stuff. Great hooky, another I think pretty perfect song. Tell me about that one if you can. Well, "All for You" was you know one of the things we always tried to do was. When in sampling, which we we love sampling, we embrace sampling. There was a lot of people that thought, you know, we should be like music purists, and you know, Beethoven wouldn't have been into sampling and all. And people would say stuff like that, and we'd be like, <laughs> people that create will use whatever tools are available to create to do their best work. The other thing I always loved about sampling was that I was a DJ, so I, you know, back in my early days, so I that the glow of love. I Change was one of my favorite records. And I used to take the two turntables and always loop the beginning of it because I always loved the way that record sound. So I always loved it as a way of connecting the dots. And I remember when we did the track for All For You, just the track, and I remember uh, Shawnette, who was one of Janet's dancers, walked into the room when we were recording it. And she just said, oh my God, I love this. Oh, Luther Vandross, oh yeah, this is my jam. This is my jam. And I thought, cool. And then Janet walked in the room and she said, Janet, remember this? Remember this? Oh, this is so cool. And Janet goes, no, I never heard it before. She said, but I like it. And it was like, okay, good. So we have someone that's never heard the sample that loves it and somebody that's heard the sample and loves it. So that's a good start. 
And then I remember when we did, you know, finish the record, it was at the point once again, where we were doing the whole album. So we didn't have to think of songs as singles. They were just songs in the creation of the album. And I remember we were doing, she was doing an interview. I, I want to say Entertainment Weekly or somebody like that. And in the background, they were just kind of playing songs from the album. And we hadn't decided what the, you know, what it was going to be. And um, the single. And I remember that song came on and everybody just kind of started grooving and, and whatever. And then I think they asked, you know, what's the single going to be? And I kind of, we kind of looked at uh, Roger Davies, who was the manager, her manager at that point in time. And Roger Davies kind of went, I don't know, maybe this one, <laughs> since, since everybody's grooving on that. So that was kind of fun to, to kind of watch the organicness of that kind of raise its hand as I should be the first offering from the album. And also we were coming off of a really big hit, which was Doesn't Really Matter from yes. the United Professor soundtrack. And this song was a kind of a natural segue, kind of in sound and in the kind of happiness of it, the bubbliness of it. And, you know, funky bottom, pretty top, you can keep that formula going. And the great thing about that record was that record, I think, in in, in history of music, of, of radio ads, was the only record to get 100% added to pop radio and black radio in the first week. No record had ever done that before, and I don't believe it, it happened since. And so that's always the thing with music. You want to try to connect it with people, and that was a record that really connected the other thing I remember is the little, um, all the girls at the party, look at that body. That part yeah. of the song was actually at the end of the song. It was kind of like the after, well, it's kind of a bridge type of thing. And I remember when the song started, we kept going, we got to do something at the beginning of the song to really catch people. Like that was, that was kind of our thing. And we were like, and thinking about Steve Hodge, we were like, Steve, what if we took the first, that part and just did an acapella of it and then um, put that at the beginning of the song? So the funny thing was Janet recorded with her headphones so loud that you couldn't really do an acapella because you could hear the headphone bleed. You could hear the track. So if you go back and listen to that record now, you'll hear kind of this swooshy kind of little sound. And it was because Steve Hodge had to like doctor it to make it sound like, okay, no, that sounds like it's supposed to be like that. But it was really the headphone leakage and a bunch of crazy stuff. Steve Hodge always did that. He saved our bad recordings and made them sound uh, uh, great but it caught everybody's attention right immediately. The first thing you heard was Janet's voice. And I thought that was a great way to kind of like, I'm back, you know, here I am, I'm back. I'm with a new song. So it worked out really well. Before we go, and because this has gone crazily fast, I could uh, talk to you guys all day, but uh, Mariah Carey's Glitter is one of those things that at the time, you know, it was released right into 9-11 and Mariah had her trouble. And so it's one of those albums, it's actually, you probably know, it's, it's been really embraced and people are really into it now. I'm just curious what stands out in your memory from that uh, collaboration? Well, for, in my memory of any collaboration with Mariah is that she is one of the most fantastic humans, A, but fantastic talents. I mean, her songwriting skills are second to none. Conceptually, she can she can throw down with the best of them. I can say that. And it's always just a joy to write with her because um, the thing that I love about it, it, when she writes, she loves to keep it simple. And she makes sure she holds everyone to that task. Super melodic, super simple. That's all. That's her whole thing. That's the biggest memory of it. And she always has a concept. She talk about starting with a concept. Mariah is that girl. She always starts with a great concept. And um, that's my biggest memory. I remember going on a, a writing trip with her to Hawaii and just <laughs> sitting all day long waiting for the night run 
of writing all night. So we would we would start maybe like at 11, 12 o'clock at night and write <laughs> until the birds sang in the morning. But man, is she so talented. She's so talented. Fantastic. Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, a true honor. Thank you so much for joining me. I, I don't know about you, but I could have gone all, on all day. So thanks so much. Can't wait to hear the album. Well, I, and Brian, let's do it again soon when there's uh, more new music to talk about. We look forward to doing it. Sounds that. great. Yes. Thank you, Brian. And that's our show for today. We'll be back next week with more Rolling Stone music now here on Sirius XM's volume channel 106. In the meantime, we are a podcast. Download us as a podcast. Subscribe to us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe leave us a nice review on iTunes if you can. I truly do appreciate it. But as always, thanks for listening. Do stay safe. And we will definitely see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was the three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord! We get it! They have chemistry! Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.